views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blood. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Nelaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking along with projects and people who help combat it. August 31st, 2016. Tonight, we'll examine the ripple effects after only two weeks of the DOJ decision to phase out private prisons. We'll also make a take a big stick to a racist, genocidal governor in the form of Maine's Paul LePage. Speak softly, hell. We are going to be all over his behind and those who dare support or ignore his words and deeds. We'll revisit the story of 24-year-old J. Michael Mitchell, who was arrested for stealing less than $5 worth of snacks from a Virginia 7-Eleven store and then starved to death in jail. We go over body camera footage released of 84-year-old Muskegee, Oklahoma black woman being pepper sprayed in her own home by slave catchers hunting her grandson. We reviewed the murder of Javier Garcia Guana in Santa Maria, California by police. Police didn't know this was being filmed when they lied and said Javier lunged at them in a threatening manner. Nothing like that happened. We'll talk about the slave trade routes of private prisons, how slavery became race-based, and who profits from prison slavery. We will discuss institutional racism in politics and how Republican mayor in Alabama, Patsy Capshaw Skipper, ranted publicly that she doesn't like losing because of niggers. Finally, we look forward to and ask that you help us to bring awareness for the IWW Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee National Prison Work Strike occurring on 9-9-2016, which is scheduled on the date of the Attica Prison Slavery Uprising of 1971. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Kia Stewart, who was railroaded into prison at 17 years old and recently released in April of 2015. Kia was exonerated through a unique joint effort between IPNO and the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office. The newly launched Conviction Integrity and Accuracy Project, the conclusion of Kia's case and the end of his wrongful incarceration marked the project's first success. Our abolitionist in profile tonight will be provided by Scotty Reed. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. If you'd like to share a comment or a question, call in and join us at one 
The access code is 549-032-POUND. Expect to hear all of that and more tonight, again, on New Abolitionist Radio. Once more, I'm Max Partis. What's happening, Brother Scotty? How you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, Max, uh, Johanan is with us uh, tonight um, at the beginning of the program. How you doing, Brother Johanan? Uh, I see you escaped the plantation for the time being. (laughs) Hey, good to be here. Y'all know I've been chomping at the bit, too, because these last two weeks have been like life. You know, life to my abolitionist bones. Yeah, Tearing that's down true. the slave plantation, the uh, the private prison system going down in flames. I'm loving that. Yeah, me too, man. Just hours ago, um, I got a Google News alert uh, from, um, I have a Geo Group news alerts out for all the pri- private prison um, enslavers. And so I got one today that says that the Geo Group is being sued by some of its investors. A class action lawsuit has been initiated since the Geo Group, uh, yes, as of yesterday, 4.5 million shares were, were wow. moved, moved on Tuesday. Um, Johanan, isn't that is that like an extraordinary number of shares to move for one company in one day on one trading day? That seems like a lot to me. Uh, but they oh, are yeah. it's now trading under twenty dollars, man. That's a great victory. Keep pushing it till it's zero to all of them lose their shirts, so to speak, in the in the uh, uh, prison slave market. Under twenty dollars, Scotty. Just this time last year, they were trading at nearly forty dollars a share. It's at nineteen dollars and seventy-five cent. Oh man, you gotta love that. You gotta love that. I just, we just, you know, I, I think I speak for all three of us when we feel like, you know, this just kind of vindicates what we've been saying over and over again. And people should be looking at us now, going, "These are the guys who really." have a good grasp of what's happening instead of all these knuckleheads you're listening to who are doing nothing but distracting you from something that could literally solve most of our problems. Yeah, these guys, these people keep getting on, on uh, major media, but you know, the thing about uh, mainstream media is someone has to extend that line of communication to who they want to speak. You know, it's rare that they're going to give uh, the, the microphone to a true, to a truth teller, and, and oftentimes we've seen when folks do get on on uh, live TV or cable news or you know get on a on a widespread radio broadcast, they shock the host when they actually know what they're talking about and able to stay on point and keep making their their point known, you know, even though they're trying to derail them. But uh, to Scotty's point about the uh, lawsuit, there's actually three that were filed um i got a notification on the 25th so it's been a, about a week that uh three were filed by three different law firms uh i got one from uh pomerantz law firm um i got one from the rosen law firm and uh one from um one more that's uh uh kessler topaz messler and check llp and these are all international law firms that are alleging that geo group and uh, CCA were um, uh, in breach of contract with the federal prisons, which put their shareholders at risk because they said they would keep, you know, the standard of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. I mean, I guess if y'all don't mind, I'll just read to people what it says. Um, sure, and if you can provide a link on New Abolitionist Radio so I and our yes, readers can check it out, that would be great. Yes, sir, I'll put the links up right now. Uh, GEO Group uh, provides government outsourced services, blah, 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 says the complaint alleges that GEO 
and certain of its executive officers made a series of false and misleading statements and or failed to disclose to investors during the class period that GEO's facilities lacked adequate safety and security standards and were less efficient in offering correctional services than the Federal Bureau of Prisons facilities. GEO's rehabilitative services for inmates were less effective than those provided by the BOP and consequently the Department of Justice was unlikely to renew and or extend its contracts with GEO as a result of the foregoing. GEO's public statements were materially false and misleading at all relevant times. So uh, this is what they extended to GEO as well as CCA and uh, Brother Robert Robertson made a very uh, good point when I first posted this on my personal page saying that a victory, I mean this is money, these people lost nearly 400 million dollars when their stocks crashed and burned um, last week and as he was saying you know they're going to come and get their money and as soon as they're found guilty and have to pay we've got a legal precedent that's been set to show that they've been in violation like by a court failing his actual words said it just dawned on me after reading this that those 20 year contracts negotiated with for profit profiteers uh, in the BOP uh, Bureau of Prisons can be challenged under the breach of contract that four prison plantations have been unable and falsified to fulfill its contractual agreement to provide safe, secure, sanitary facilities. If this lawsuit prevails, this could be the beginning of the end, period. So this is uh, this is interesting, man. This is, this is nails in the coffin. The beginning of the end. And, you know, people thought we would never see it. <laughs> you know? Like, they didn't think we had a chance in hell. Just a few voices around the country making a start. Didn't have a chance in hell. Guess what? Hell gave a chance. Hey, also, look, hey, just think of this, though. With these three, I didn't know it was three lawsuits. I only got an alert on one, which was about five days ago, but I only came across it in my email today. But just think about what's going on here. One group of slavers suing another group of slavers, saying that you didn't even hold up to the federal government's uh, standards for the treatment of slaves. So you defrauded us. You didn't tell us about all this. But listen, if they had been paying attention to the news, if they had been listening to New Abolitionist Radio, they would have heard these stories over a span of four, going on four years. Story after story, you know, uh, of prisoners going on strike, which is one of the stories Max mentioned that's going to be occurring. Uh, We reported on the um, ICE immigration detention contracts, which are up under investigation now by Homeland Security, and those uh, prisoners going on strike. And so we, hey, it's no, they plead in ignorance in these court filings, but if they had just paid attention to the news headline, they would have knew all of this, all these human rights violations were going on on geo slave plantations. But this is still, now we got the slavers fighting each other in court. This is a great day. Indeed, brother. I, you know, I've been going at this so long now every single day without a break for years. Back in 2010, we launched a campaign called March 4th. That echo is killing me. We, we launched a campaign called March 4th for Freedom where we had uh, individuals go to their local jails, prisons, juvenile detention centers, and form protests right there simultaneously on the same day, March 4th, 2010. It was a big success. We even had people across the uh, world who were 
hanging their shoes from their windows in support of what we were doing in our march at the time. And not long afterwards, the Occupy movement literally stole that idea and used it for their own purposes and made it about everything and nothing. But, you know, we've been fighting for this very thing now for that long and more. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited that we've gotten to the point where we're actually delivering blows to them that they can feel. That $400 million is not something that made their CEOs very happy, nor their shareholders. That is a big loss, and it's the first of many. See, the goal is to make slavery more expensive than it's worth. You're right. That is that is one of the goals, most definitely, and that's that's the, one of the most practical ways to make a greedy person stop eating. When it when it just don't taste good, you you still think you're hungry. Keep on keep on taking bites. Keep losing money. Keep losing money because there's no shame in none of their game. They don't have no shame. They don't mind losing thousands and thousands of lives. You know, as long as they're making hundreds of millions of dollars, they don't mind international. Uh, disdain and international uh, headlines talking about the inhumanity and the constitutional violations and the human rights violations they don't mind they don't mind the rape they don't mind the abuse they don't mind the inhumanity they don't mind the laws that prey upon people they don't mind the hyper policing the terrorism that goes on in communities they don't mind the creation of the so called million dollar blocks where the cities don't have any infrastructure, don't have any schools, don't have any services, don't have any health care, don't have any access to any kind of way out. But each block is worth several million dollars if you count the worth in terms of people that are sucked up out of the community and placed in prisons. So they don't mind any of that. They don't give not one damn. But when they start losing money, all of a sudden they lose their appetite. Oh, I don't, I don't want to play the prison game. It costs too much. Exactly. You know, back in 2008, when Vice President Dick Cheney uh, had $80 million of his own money invested in the Vanguard Group and by default in the prison industry and was working with uh, the, the district attorney, the, the, actually the attorney general at the time, in order to create these laws, which would keep Alberto Gonzalez. Umber uh, uh, Alberto Gonzalez, he went on Alberto to become the uh, another U.S. Attorney General under Bush. Right, right. And, uh, Attorney General, who was working with the Vice President, the sitting Vice President, to increase the terms that people would be spending in prison to get them in there earlier and for less reasons, not because of justice, but because they were both invested in the prisons and this was how they were going to make their money. $80 million worth invested while sitting in the freaking White House and as the Attorney General of the United States of America. And nobody was talking then, but everybody's talking now. Another you know, I, uh, kind of a... Okay, I'm sorry. Another kind of a... Not quite a side note, but I mean related story is also uh, that came out during this same time that's showing kind of the end of all of this. I don't, I don't know if... Uh, if I'll post a link to it as well um, this is from the Immigrant Legal uh, Resource Center that's talking about the California Assembly passed uh, a, a bill called uh, Dignity Not Detention Act um, which is actually ending private immigration detention in the state of California and so on a state level uh, is because one of the first things that I heard when the DOJ released that memo 
a couple of weeks ago saying that they were not going to renew contracts for federal private prison detention um, you know it was all kind of backlash coming from people that I guess for some reason feel that they know more about this than we do uh, kind of coming hard you know at, at me and at, at others that were that were hailing this as a, a change in the wind you know we weren't saying this is the end of the problem but just saying that this is definitely a change you know in the momentum that the DOJ would come out and say this they're claiming that there is an issue they're acknowledging a problem that we've been talking about so we were just happy for that victory but there's a lot of naysayers that come out oh that's only 13 prisons that's only so many millions oh they got 20-year contracts it's not gonna make a difference they just lying it's just whatever and then we see the stocks drop the next you know that next day another sign you can't fake all that money well now on the state level where people were saying the real money is in the immigrant detention industry and in state-to-state -state contracts. Well, on the state level, California is one of the leaders in both immigrant detention as well as private prisons. As you know, they've had a federal order for the last 10 years to reduce their state prison uh, system by massive numbers, which they never really did. They just sent people into other states still under their control through private prisons. Well, this is something that's going to come to pass. California Assembly passed Dignity Not Detention Act and says no to private immigrant detention. This was on August 23rd, so I'll post a link for this as well. The momentum is continuing, fellas, in several different ways. Man, it's hard to believe that we're actually having this conversation about private detention centers when, when we began this program, they were about to close their detention centers because there was no one to put in them. Remember that? Just when we began this program back around, I believe it was 2012, about a year into it or so, they were saying that they needed to close these detention centers across the borders and throughout America because there were simply not enough immigrants coming in illegally or being held to warrant having them. And then within a short period of time, like just months, literally, a rumor caused an influx that made us see what we see today. And the first thing the president did was give him $3.7 billion, which he also followed up on just, what was it, two years ago, by giving another billion away uh, in a no-bid contract, which as far as I know is illegal. Yeah, it is illegal. And that came out, and he's under investigation. His, his uh, administration is under investigation for that because it was straight-up no-bid. And if you remember... Uh, Mike uh, Christopher Epps, or I keep want to call him Mike Epps. Christopher Epps in uh, Mississippi, the longest-serving state official uh, with 32 years, uh, was he the what they call him the secretary or commissioner of uh, state prisons? Um, and Cecil McCrory, the uh, former state legislator in Mississippi, as well as president of, of the uh, state school school board or whatever. I mean, he's working the school to prison pipeline to the utmost. Provided him with those connections and, and basically instituted those contracts and uh, they're both facing serious prison time and that case as it continues to be investigated is getting swept under the rug because they're willing to name names to stay out of the prison and they're throwing everybody under the bus they can so Obama's administration is uh, is subject to be under under a pretty, pretty tough investigation because that was straight up no bid you know, that Cecil McCrory story is, is pretty mind-blowing when you consider what he was. You know, when he was uh, arrested under these uh, circumstances, he was, at the time, the head of the Board of Education there. Prior to that, he had also been a judge and a lawmaker 
And all the time, he was continually working with the private prisons. So you know that as a judge, through his contacts, he was making sure that these prisons were staying full and working directly with Christopher Epps, the commissioner of the entire prison system in Mississippi, in order to ensure that this was the case and that there was no big contracts were going out to his uh, colleagues. I mean, this is stuff that is genocidal. There really is no other word that describes what is happening. It is literally genocidal when you talk about an entire state, not just one prison, the entire damn state being corrupt. One of the things I want people to think about, too, is that uh, Epps case was roughly calculated by uh, Christopher Epps' attorney earlier this year to have cost the state of Mississippi nearly $800 million. Um, that's just one state. So what we're talking about, just understand, we, uh, we know and understand to at least some degree the size and the scope of the parties involved and the monies involved and the changes of people's lives, the lifestyle in this country, the economy, your neighborhood, my neighborhood, people buying and selling goods and services, and all of this is connected to ending slavery. If you're talking about one state that just stopped giving away no-bid contracts, costing that state over $800 million because people would have been competitively bidding could have saved them a lot of money. So if it cost them $800 million just in one state, can you imagine the impact on the country itself if they had to return those jobs to the private sector? Two and a half million people locked up, 12 and a half million people going through the system and being subjected to slavery to whatever extent, whether it's a one-day term or six months or five years sitting on Rikers and ain't never been in court, to have your day in court for the case they charged you with, but you're doing slave labor while you're there waiting. Can you imagine the trillions of dollars that are just going by the wayside? That you know, you don't have to. You don't have to raise taxes on the rich. You don't have to change, uh, lower taxes on the middle class or do all these high highbrow political things that people get caught up in, in in presidential campaigns arguing over and Republicans versus Democrats and all these different policy people discuss and, and it'll never pass because nobody wants to give ground. If you end slavery, you will return trillions of dollars to the masses of the of the population in a heartbeat. You know, I just posted on our new abolitionist page on Facebook the entire story about Christopher Epps as it was given by Rachel Maddow on MSNBC where uh, she went into detail about what was going on, including mapping out how he was going from bank to bank to bank depositing $9,999 to avoid being busted and doing it in an hour's time where he went to like eight different banks to drop them in. And he was uh, getting uh, posh homes and cars, luxury cars, and all these things that sellouts get when being controlled by slavers. So if you want to see it in, its, in detail, just go to New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook right now, and you can see it as part of the series we created called I Denounce This So-Called Emancipation as a Stupendous Fraud. Man, it has been so many effects, and it's only been two weeks 
you know, I, I want to point out a hey, couple just, other things. Hey, that's, that's the unique. law. Hey, what we're seeing is math, is science, it's the ripple effect, man. Yes, that um, it is certainly the ripple effect. It is uh, fractal geometry in play, complexity theory, science. <laughs> All you got to do is knock over the first domino. And we're getting allies from some of the strangest places now. People are coming out who you didn't expect to come out and speak on it. One of those would be the Texas Prison Guard Union, who actually is advocating to close private prisons. I mean, who would have thought that? Because this is their livelihoods we're talking about. Less prisons mean less prison guards. But they are actually advocating the closing of private prisons in Texas. As a matter of fact, the president of the largest chapter of the Texas Prison Guard Union suggested this week that the state's prison system should close its private prisons and give out-of-prison supervision to more of its nonviolent inmates. About half, damn, half of the population of Texas prisoners were convicted of nonviolent crimes. And uh, Lance Laurie, the president of the Huntsville Union chapter, says, we're not running our criminal justice system efficiently. He told me in a phone interview, a lot of inmates could be better managed under community supervision. And that comes from the president of the prisons union in Texas. And I mean, but that's still, though, I wouldn't necessarily call them an ally, uh, but, you know, uh, there, I see them as trying to say themselves because I don't know Max and I don't know the information out there, but I bet you that they probably represent a lot of the state employees. And so they can come out with a statement against private prisons, even if they have some guards working in private prisons that's due paying members to the overseers, you know, union. Um, but so they come out That's, with these statements because we've seen this trickery before from, um, you know, the geo group and other uh, corporations. And so they're trying to uh, they can come out with a statement like that and make them seem like, oh, they're against private prisons. But no, they're trying to say the end, the whole entire industry. So that's the they'll look at them as the sacrificial lambs. We're going to go along with this momentum and chop off this limb. Uh, but at least we'll say the rest, you know. So, right, right. so, so I, I'm looking. I would consider that as a possibility of their stand. But then, like Geo Group and others have talked about getting in on the uh, profiting from these probation programs, you know, the home monitoring and the whole probation services. They're involved in that. As well, so they're all over that. So if these individuals are in prison over nonviolent, victimless drug crimes, which you said over half, and they didn't harm right. another individual, then they don't. What do they need your supervision for? They don't need. They just need you to get your nose out of their business. They ain't harming nobody else again in in twenty five over half the states. Thirty three states either have recreational cannabis or. They have uh, medical cannabis. It's legalized. Nobody in on in this uh, country should be in prison for that. Again, let's read the let's stop allowing let's let's stop allowing them or accepting their accepting their definitions of crime. A crime to me is very simple. Where I, as an individual, harm another individual of their of their life, of their liberty, of their property. When I cause harm to, when my action has a negative impact 
on another individual in the ways I that it to me is crime. Me, if I chose to go out on in the backyard in that, that big old empty field, Max, and grow a whole bunch of cannabis, who am I harming? Who am I harming? Right. If I you know, so I mean when we have doctors who have the science has a knowledge that this has many medicinal benefits, that it could even it is prescribed and recommended for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder in in regards to veterans, but I mean it would it treats any kind of trauma, you know, stress disorder. People have known this for thousands of years and just have been self-medicating. So now we have doctors and scientists finally coming around and acknowledging what man mankind has known about this plant for thousands of years, but we're putting in people in prison for it. Amen to that. Well, we're, we're on schedule for our break. Are we going to take that? Oh, uh, yes, sir. All right. Well, we're going to take our break. When we come back, I want to go over one more story to show what's coming out regarding DHS, and then we'll move on to this governor that we want to castrate here on New Abolitionist Radio today. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. Since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We were just discussing the risk ripple effects of uh, the announcement by the Department of Justice that they would be phasing out their use of private prisons. And as you uh, said earlier, Johan, and a lot of people came out and started talking about how that was nothing and it's only 13% and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, let's put this into context. Imagine, for instance, that you're a woman being abused by her spouse seven days a week being beat and abused and the kids are watching, right? Now, that's our prison industry. And then somebody shows up and says, you know what, on Mondays, I am taking you out of this house so you will not have to deal with this anymore on Mondays, right? And somebody says, well, we're going to get an ass beat for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, so that's nothing. That's how they sound. That's, that's how you sound. And to say that, you know, this private prisons, that the ending of them, whether it be federal or state or whatever, is just a small thing, is ridiculous. This, this is huge, and you need to recognize that and fight harder to make even more of it in. And I'd like to read something uh, in regards to what people were saying uh, as far as the Department of Homeland uh, Services to review private prison contracts. And this comes out from the Independent Global News, and it's a quote from Congressman Raul Gravalva of Arizona. And if you remember, uh, Gravalva was one of the people who brought forth the Justice is Not for Sale Act, which would 
permanently ban private prisons from the United States of America. That bill, which was introduced by Bernie Sanders and uh, Congressman Paul Gravalva, among others, is now in Congress uh, being reviewed, and we're trying to make sure that that becomes a law. Not only will it end private prisons and ban them from the United States, but it also eliminates the 34,000 per month uh, mandatory quota that these prisons have. So the quote is very simple. It says, in the United States Department of Homeland Security, Secretary Jay Johnson has ordered DHS review its contracts with for-profit prison companies. This comes after the Justice Department told the Bureau of Prisons to end its use of private prisons earlier this month. DHS oversees a network of immigrant detention centers. About 34,000 immigrants are currently being held in for-profit detention centers. Human rights activists and some lawmakers celebrated the announcement. Arizona Congressman Raul Grijalva said this step is a tactic admission that the corporations who profit by locking up desperate adults and children undermine our decency as a nation. As with the Justice Department's announcement two weeks ago, the DHS moved caused the plunge of stocks for Geo Group and Corrections Corporation of America, two of the largest for-profit prison operators. I bet you, uh, Congressman Raul is celebrating pretty hard right now because Arizona is one of the worst places in the country. Right, long time under uh, the. I mean, the, the, one of the one of the uh, forefathers of Donald Trump with all his rhetoric and how people get all excited, and you see the national support that he's gotten for talking trash and whatever. But that uh, Sheriff Joe, he's been doing that for what 40 years 50 years out there or whatever made a big name for itself all in the late 80s 90s the early 2000s and just talking all this trash about criminals primarily aimed at you know brown skin folks and uh, got away with racial profiling and all of this for years but um i'm gonna have to find that link um because when we were talking about this a couple of years ago the 34,000 bed a day mandate being up for renewal um, in Congress, you know, there was a huge grassroots activist uh, outcry for people to, you know, how everybody's excited about voting right now. It's the election year for the president. People are all excited and make sure you turn up and the people died for our right and all of this kind of thing. And we couldn't get people to simply make a decision about who they would support based on who was going forward in Congress to, to vote to uh, renew that contract. So now it's good and it's convenient to jump on the bandwagon now in 2016 and act like you was always against this and you just hate private prisons and you just, oh, man, in slavery, you right, they just doing people wrong. I mean, yeah, that's fine. I appreciate you coming in and, you know, being on the right side of history at this point. But let's be serious. When these people went to Congress, when they went to vote on this, you could count on maybe, maybe two hands, probably one hand the number of people that was coming out telling you what was going on and what was up what was at stake and in the time since then these people have generated hundreds and hundreds of well like max said 3.8 billion or 6 or 7 billion dollars and an additional billion dollars have been allocated to this so-called border crisis these people have reaped mega profits for years untouched unconcerned unworried so look at your local representative Look at your congressperson. Look at the political individuals that you're about to vote for on this ballot coming up in November 
Look them up. Google their name and look up their voting record on this very issue. Did they vote to approve 34,000 bed a day mandate for the so-called border crisis? Did they agree with Obama allocating over $4 billion in just the last couple of years to private prisons to detain immigrants? If they did, you're a hypocrite just like they're a hypocrite if you say that you're against this today and then if you go ahead and vote for them again you're both idiots hey Scotty I got a friend of mine who's calling in uh, John Van Dyke Wilmerding calling in from where calling he was in one of the people who introduced me in, uh, to the Sanders campaign yeah, man. Yeah, he was one of the people that introduced me to the Sanders campaign when I was lobbying them for the This Is Not For Sale Act. And he said he would call in this week and give us his story on it. You know, we uncovered a lot about Vermont and what's happening with Vermont and what's happening with Bernie Sanders, who is uh, the congressman or the senator for Vermont. Max, his, can you hear me? <laughs> no, I couldn't hear you. What were you saying? I said, what number did you give him to call in? Um, I gave him the uh, the the conference call line. Okay, if he's on the line, just hit star six and one, sir, at any time, and we will bring you in um, to the conversation. That is again star six one. All right. Yeah, he just sent me a message on Facebook, and I'll reiterate it and put that number back up for him so he can see it, just in case he's having any problems or calling in the wrong number. But as I was saying, uh, he introduced me to the Sanders campaign since he was working with them out of Vermont. And uh, we uncovered a lot of things about Vermont and Bernie Sanders, one of them being that Vermont arrests the, uh, their black citizens at a rate of 14 to 1, one of the worst in the nation when it comes to uh, the disparities in arrest records. And it's even worse when you consider that Vermont is probably the whitest state in the nation with a black population of only 1.2%. And of those 1.2%, they're still being arrested at 14 to 1. It's almost as if you have to surround the whole black community and consistently arrest nothing but them in order to get these types of numbers. And we also discovered that Vermont led the way in creating what we know today as the uh, convict leasing system and what has morphed into the prison for profit system. Even right now, Vermont has contracts with private prisons where they're shipping human beings to other states so they can share in the profits with these other states, working directly with private prisons. So Senator Sanders was a hypocrite talking about these private prisons while his own state was practicing it more than anyone else uh, on that level. Well, and Max, that was just Max. the beginning of some of the things we found out. Well, Max, I, I respect and appreciate your perspective on that, but I wouldn't go that far to say he was a hypocrite because that could have been because he's just one senator over one district in Vermont. And so it, it can't just all be, be his fault. Now, that could have been going on during the course because he's been in there a very long time and it never occurred to him or he didn't care about it, or he was like everybody else and he was okay with slavery. So, yeah, he does have to ask a, answer the question of what brought him to now introducing or supporting legislation that would ban pr private prisons and jails through the um, um, Justice is Not For Sale Act. So 
again, those are valid questions, valid criticism. I wouldn't lay it all at, at his door, but perhaps, you know, all of those things going on around him and, and somebody bringing it to his attention. And so something moved him to back this legislation and introduced it, which is historical legislation. This is the first piece of abolitionist legislation that has perhaps been introduced prior to 1865. Okay, so so you know, I do think that people should be recognized when they do do something that's towards the right direction. So I, I will always be grateful for him, but I'm still gonna criticize him like we have done. Well, why do didn't you bring this is so important to you? Why you didn't bring it up during the debates? You know why you didn't point out more of Hillary the Clinton's involvement in this. So I again agree with your criticism that perhaps he was sheepdogging for Hillary and the Democrats all along. But that legislation by itself, and again, he ain't. I don't even think he introduced it. I think that he supported it, and he was at the press conference with Keith Ellison. It might be Keith Ellison's name on it, and that uh, Hispanic, it's a Hispanic name, uh, a Mexican-American name, um, the representative out of Arizona. That's the other co-sponsor co, uh, or person who... Uh, um, what it, what they call it? Well, introduce the legislation. So let's not forget him. Yeah, let's not. Yeah, co-sponsor, but let's not forget him. But I, I do appreciate the the level of awareness that his campaign has raised for the little bit that when it did speak on these on these on this particular issue. So I, I, I'm not going to indict him. Because uh, we can indict every a whole bunch of people for what's going on in Vermont and all across USA, USA Inc. Um, so, but I, I just want to say, though, it's still a great day. Who knows what what uh, influence that just introducing that piece of le- legislation and ripple effect it had on the Department of Justice to do its review, which we then came out with this conclusion. Did then said we are going to end our our contracts with private prisons, end our reliance on it, and now here we're talking today with Geo Group under $20, trading under $20. Well, you know, I went to visit their campaign in South Carolina and talked to the campaign manager in September of 2015. In August of 2015, they started their contracts with the Geo Group, which would ship out their prisoners to places like Michigan. And, uh, there's a story that I just posted on New Abolitionist Radio, which shows their connection to CCA and GEO Group uh, at the time, directly out of Vermont. So I say hypocrite because you're talking about with me right face to face about ending these private prisons, and then at the same time, in your very state and in your district, you're sending prisoners out working with the private prisons. But he is a federal. He's a federal. He's a federal representative. He introduces legislation to Congress. He he works on the fed from the federal USA Inc. See, he's a board member of USA Inc. So they pass legislation that does affect the entire country. But in Vermont, that's state legislation. What you're talking about? Any contracts that the state of Vermont has, like any other state, Louisiana, 
uh, Texas, anybody else. Ha- that's all at the state level. That, that's why it's so many levels to this. And, and so, uh, uh, again, I, I'm just saying, I'm not trying to say you're right. wrong to criticize him. We, I would ask him a question, well, did you raise this issue since you live in Vermont? You have a state representative. You have a state senator. Did you raise this issue with them? Uh, uh, Mr. Sanders, while you're saying you back this legislation on federal level, have you personally in your own state approached your local representative? You personally have a representative for the district. Are you bringing it up with them? Indeed, indeed. Well, the contracts that they signed with Vermont at that time affected 675, as many as 675 prisoners. They were sending them out at a per diem uh, of $61.80 a day to these private prisons. And that's a contract worth over $15 million a year for 675 prisoners. Well, hopefully he calls in today. And uh, like you, I'm appreciative of the fact that this came out, the Justice is Not for Sale Act. And I think Pressure Health pulled it out. And I don't think he was in on it by himself. As you said, the other two gentlemen that introduced it were probably more involved than he was. But he lended his credibility to it at, at the time. And I'm appreciative of that. But again, you know, I'm, I'm the type of person where I would criticize my own self. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to hold anybody beyond criticism at this point. Hey, that's exactly right. You are exactly right. Nothing should be above criticism uh, in truth telling. And you just tell, telling the truth as you see it. I'm just trying to offer another perspective. But at the end of the day, I'm still in full agreement with you. Let's put him on the spot. Let's ask these questions. And again, I haven't heard him mention it since it was first introduced, really. So, well, you know, I'm getting emails from him, from his camp. You know, the uh, whole progressive caucus thing that they now going to convert all that money that he got from contributors into his own little, you know, political revolution, political organization. And I ain't heard them bringing it up. You know, they talking about electing progressive candidates. That's what they're sending out in terms of their communications. But again, why it this should keep the pressure on them. You see the market is reacting. His He should have been come out with a press release, if not a press conference, on the market reaction to the Department of Justice. Has he even said anything about the Department of Justice decision? So, there you go. I haven't heard anything. I haven't heard anything. You know, that's when you dangle carrots, you only need to put it out there on that stick one time. The rest is up to the followers. Well, unless uh, he has called in, I will move on. We'll move on to uh, Maine. And maybe after that story, he'll call in. Yeah, the call in number uh, for anybody that wants to comment, has a question, an observation, an insight you want to share with the listening audience, give us a call at 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549-032-POUND. Hit star six and one. Uh, to enter into the question and answer queue. Indeed. Well, moving on to Maine, I've been looking forward to uh, laying a smackdown on this one. You know, we talked about this about a year ago, uh, Governor Paul LePage, where he was basically saying that the black people are the problems in Maine. Well, things have gotten even worse, and he's become emboldened with these statements and saying these things. And it makes you wonder just how much of his actions reflect his words and what has he been doing to the black community in Maine. 
there's a video on New Abolitionist Radio, Scotty, if you can cue that up, uh, and I'll just read an intro to it so people understand what's happening in Maine, and it's regarding uh, Paul LePage. In 2014, about 1,200 people in Maine were arrested for selling or buying drugs statewide. 14% of those arrested were black and Hispanic. But the governor is claiming 90% of the drugs and violence are black people. Let me explain something to those who are unwilling to even check. Maine has a total black population of 1.4%. In order to be responsible for the claims, every black man, woman, and child in Maine would have to be selling drugs full-time and then committing violent crimes on the weekend. You know what's really happening in racist Maine? This. The main population is 1.3 million. Of that 1.3 million, 95% is white, black is 1.4%. The incarceration rates are 262 to 1,992. In a state that's 95% white, blacks are being arrested and uh, incarcerated at 8 to 1. Now listen to what he's saying in his own words. These are guys of the name D-Money, Smoothie, Shifty, uh, these type of guys that come from Connecticut, New York. They come up here, they sell their heroin, then they go back home. Incidentally, half the time they impregnate a young white girl before they leave, which is a real sad thing because then we have another issue that we've got to deal with down the road. Bad guy's a bad guy. I don't care what color it is. When you go to war, if you know the enemy, the enemy dresses in red and you dress in blue, you shoot at red, don't you? Ken, you, you've been in uniform. You shoot at the enemy. You try to identify the enemy. And the enemy right now, the overwhelming majority of people coming in are people of color or people of Hispanic origin. That's the end of the video, Max. That's the end well, of the video. Well, damn. There was a little bit where he was pointing out that he, he asked somebody from the audience, he says, when you got an enemy and they're wearing red and you're wearing blue, you know to shoot at the enemy that's in He red, just right? said that. And he was basically saying to shoot black people. Like he's aiming, he wants his police to aim at black people just for the color of their skin and no other reason. Yeah, we said that. We heard that. Man, it's it's freaking amazing. And right now, you got main Republican leaders who are ready to overlook all of this, regardless of what he's saying. To just let it go as if it's just your crazy uncle talking nonsense. No, this is no crazy uncle talking nonsense. This is the governor of the entire state of Maine. And, and, and you have to wonder what he has done to follow up on his words with actions. Well, I haven't heard anything since this story was first reported. I think this story like a couple of months old. I do remember he said that earlier this year. And I think that uh, it was proven that the number of heroin dealers uh, in that state are white. Most of them are white. They're likely to be white dealers. Um, and he's telling this this um, this lie that it's likely to be the black men and Hispanic men coming in from outside the state. And oh, by the way, they're going to get your white daughter pregnant. Okay, mm. so, so um, but 
the fact is, well, why isn't he questioning what the hell U.S. Marines and uh, as well as other army troop tr- army troops are doing guarding the poppy sh- fields in Afghanistan and how they are having year after year record bumper crops and they supply eighty percent of the world and so well how and then how is all of that poppy getting turned into heroin and making its way into Maine and Vermont? in North Carolina, in, in all of these predominantly white states. For some reason, uh, um, the white people who use drugs have a particular affinity for heroin. And I heard it has something to do with all the prescriptions that have been written by doctors uh, getting people hooked on these pharmaceuticals, uh, prescription drugs for back pain and, and things of that nature. Uh, I forget the name of the particular drugs. And so now they're finding this. Yeah, oxycotton, and then they're oh, heroin is a good substitute. And so what they aren't at really asking is, hey, is this like they did the black community in the '80s with the crack epidemic, when the whole point was to raise millions of dollars off the books so Congress doesn't know what the CIA is doing and the different groups is funding all over the world to do these insurgencies and overturn these governments and and what have you. And could that possibly be going on right now and that they have decided that it's the white community's turn to for them to die and OD and, and, but, you know, provide the funds, the illicit funds in order for us to fight our dirty wars again you know so i i mean just blame it all on on uh, the character of the black drug dealer the re- black caucus the republican minority caucus in the main house has decided not to take any action to address recent inflammatory comments by republican governor paul page the house republicans decided they would stand by the governor tuesday this past tuesday following a more than two-hour private meeting where they discussed recently racially charged comments. LePage has made at a series of public meetings an an obscenity-laced voicemail that the governor left for a Democratic lawmaker last week. In that voicemail, he threatened to beat this man up and called him all kinds of nasty names for no other reason than saying that he implied, he didn't even say it, he implied that the governor is racist. Well, I'm not implying anything. I'm telling you that the governor is a racist piece of garbage. And you ever heard the phrase, the fish stinks from the head down? What do you think is happening in that state because the governor is a racist? You think his policies aren't racist policies? You just said that the majority of heroin users are white. To be specific, 84% of the arrests made for drugs there in Maine are white people. Not 90% like he claims with his little three-ring binder that he says he has with all these pictures of black people. I mean, he must be getting his jollies off looking at these pictures of black people wanting to blame them for everything that's going on. But we see that throughout politics across the entire country. It's not okay to have a racist person in office. It's simply not okay. It's, it's not allowable. There's no forgiving that. It's not you know, you wouldn't do that with a sociopath, and that's what racists pretty much are, sociopaths. It's, just, it's very upsetting to me that the, gov- that the government in Maine would say they're going to stand by this governor 
regardless of whether he is spouting genocidal rhetoric or not. It just doesn't matter to them. Black lives don't matter to them at all. And they're just going to stand by him and let this go. Johanna, you was trying to chime in. Yes. Yeah, I was uh, actually going to reference the same uh, story that Max was just mentioning right there about this latest uh, fallout that just happened. I mean, even today, they're still discussing how he was caught on this voicemail talking trash to this guy. And uh, at one point he said, at one point he said, I wish it was 1825 so I could challenge you to a duel. Mm-hmm. I mean, really? Seriously? That's what your governor said? Yep. I, I, I don't, I'm like you, man. I'm speechless. I don't understand how, I mean, damn, man. If you could call for the head of any celebrity, any activist, that comes out and says they don't agree with systems and institutions that are proven, proven by your own government studies to be racist, race-based, demonstrating patterns and practices of constitutional violations, human rights violations, over-incarcerating, hyper-policing, terrorizing, abusing, murdering, kidnapping, Enslaving. How many metropolitan police departments are going to have to be investigated and then have 150, 200, 300, 400 page reports compiled from federal government agencies working in conjunction with local police and government agencies, law firms, activists, former police? All sorts of people contribute to these DOJ reports because I hear people write this stuff off like, oh, the government's dead. Oh, they're a joke. That's Obama's uh, Justice Department. They, they, nothing they say is real. You know, I haven't read the reports. The reports talk about local police officers who give open, willing testimony as long as they can stay anonymous. They're not named, but they share their true feelings. Yeah, I go out and bust all the blackheads I can because I like to, and that's in the report. And then you say that. Obama's fake. How many of these are going to come out? And you see when this comes out, these people jump and want to put folks' heads on a, on, a, on a spike and set the town on fire and kill all the niggers. And I mean, all this crazy racist rhetoric that just explodes all over social media. Fox News, TV, cable news, they got all these people with microphones in their faces. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Kaepernick uh, should be killed for saying he's going to sit down. The Olympics, they wasted the entire Olympics talking about how uh, Gabby Douglas didn't have her hand over her heart or how other athletes, you know, stood there and didn't salute the flag during. I mean, all this kind of mess people can get so worked up about. But like Max said, you got a government official, the governor of the state, saying that all this racist stuff and then turn around and say that he's never going to speak to the press again because he's tired of getting caught on record as being a racist. Oh, that's That's what they told him in that meeting. I'm pretty sure that's what they told him in that meeting to be quiet because you don't yeah. know how to talk. That's his that's his logic. He said I will no longer speak to the press ever again after today and I'm serious. Everything I say will be put in writing. I'm tired of being caught. I'm tired of the gotcha moments. Who what? You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll continue on the other side of these messages.
listening to new abolitionist radio right here on the black talk radio network if you have a question or a comment give us a call at 641-715-3660 the participant code is 549032 pound hit star six and one to comment on air the black talk radio network is made possible in part with help from the black talk media project a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. Tuned in to Black Talk Radio, new black media for the new millennium. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. I want to try to get through about four stories at least in the next half hour, if we can, uh, and try to get them out there so people are aware of them. To follow up on what we were just talking about, government officials, chiefs of police, mayors, congressmen, senators being racist, there's got to be a way that we can find out whether or not these people are racist. I mean, you can dig through someone's phone without, uh, you know, FBI can go through someone's phone, they search your social media left and right, and they can figure out whether you got ties to ISIS or not, but you can't determine whether somebody's racist before you put them in positions of power where they can act as sociopaths. Well, the next story comes out, it's following up on what we were just talking about. And it comes out of U.S. Uncut, and it's a story by Zach Cartwright, who is an activist and author from Richmond, Virginia, in regards to the Alabama mayoral contest that went on. And the story says, after losing to a black candidate in a municipal election, an outgoing Republican mayor, now she was already the mayor, already the mayor, in Alabama, described her opponent using racial slur on Facebook. Patsy Capshaw Skipper, the former mayor of Midland City, Alabama, population 2,366, outed herself as a bigot after losing a bigot, racist, racist, not bigot. There's a difference. Outed herself as a racist after losing to Joanne Bennett Grimsley in a 233-148 margin. Skipper used the racial epithet in a response to someone's question on her Facebook page. In a screenshot obtained by the raw story, Skipper is seen responding to a constituent by saying, I lost, the nigger won. The constituent responded by saying, I'm sorry. It's actually, it started out like this, and there's a picture, you can see it on the abolitionist radio, where they caught her saying it. Patsy, this is Don, how is the election going? Patsy Capshaw Skipper, I lost, the nigger won. Belinda Thompson, I'm so sorry. Now, it's not easy, and it's not, I mean, it's not hard, and it's not a stretch 
to think that if you think racist as a racist, if you have these racist thoughts, if you think blacks are inferior, blacks are some kind of evil put on you by the devil, and you've been in positions of power, you've been acting on those beliefs. You've been, your policy should reflect your beliefs. And these are her beliefs as the mayor of uh, this city in Alabama. Skipper had only held the mayor office for six months having inherited the position from her husband, Virgil Skipper, after he retired for health reasons. And I'm pretty sure that husband was just as racist as his wife, because these are the things that they sit around the dinner table talking about. Um, Alabama voted 3-1 for Patsy Skipper to serve as interim mayor until the election. This week's election was the first time she campaigned for the popular vote. So she was given the position of mayor. How she did that, I have no freaking idea. Joanne Bentley Grimsley, who is now the mayor-elect of Midland City, has decades of experience in public service. She has served in Midland City's assistant city clerk, as well as the town's water clerk and county court clerk. Um, and this woman... Uh, you're a racist. I mean, just one sentence tells you everything you need to know about who she is, what she's about, and what her policies are. I lost. The nigger won. Fellas? Yeah, she's a... She's a piece of shit person, man. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty much long and short of it. <laughs> Pretty much long and short of it. <laughs> Sorry, I just I mean we're at the point now. This it's going to be 2017, man. Seriously, these people. I, I guess in the in the 80s, you know, my parents' uh, generation was like content to to we're going to study this, we're going to figure out why this happened, we're going to give them a chance to prove it. You know, no, it's 2017. You know better. You know better. If this is how you feel, you got somewhere you can go and say that where nobody's going to find out you said that. When you put that out there today in this world, you know it's going to be seen. You know what you're saying. You feel like you got balls to put that out there. So if I find out about it, that's what I'm going to consider you to be. That's what you are. You're not, you're not even just worthless. These people just – what they always say, go back to Africa, go back to Mexico – you know, this kind of rhetoric or whatever they talk about people that are not white when white people don't like it. Well, as a black person, and I don't like this shit, why don't you go back to the caves? Deport yourself. Go somewhere else because in this place where you stole all these millions of people and entrapped them basically on these shores, where you killed off hundreds and hundreds of millions of indigenous people and stole all their land. When you go around and colonize the entire planet and steal those people and steal their resources and set up your government and set up your banks and destroy their culture and enforce your lifestyle and your choices and your beliefs and everything about yourself is just superimposed over any existence, any form of living that can even happen on this planet, you don't get the right to walk around and hate anybody else because wasn't nobody bothering you. Nobody was enslaving you. Nobody was forcing you. Nobody was trying to deal with you. You was using Roman numerals until the 1700s. You didn't know how to multiply or divide. While the rest of the planet was doing advanced mathematics for thousands of years. We don't need you. So for you to be sitting around somewhere with your old pissy ass, and it depends, talking about how somebody else is a nigger, why don't you just take a trip on over to Poland and go freeze to death? Damn shame, man. 
understand. And, you know, the policies, as I said, of these people sitting in office with these racist ideals and beliefs, uh, these sociopaths, have real-world effects. People lose their lives because of this. They lose their freedoms. They lose their rights because of this. And an example of that would be a story that we brought to you about two years ago uh, uh, regarding a young brother by the name of J. Michael Mitchell. Um, Johanan, I just put the page, the story up on New Abolitionist Radio. If you want to pull it up, maybe cover this. I would, if I was you, I would start uh, midway where it says on April 21st, two days after his 24th birthday. That kind of covers everything from there down. But in the meantime, this story comes out from the Daily Cause, and it was uh, brought to attention recently again by Sean King. And Sean King is a brother that I do admire and like, and I'm pushing him, pushing him, and pushing him to become an abolitionist because he has the ear of millions. I mean, like his stuff is one of the most widely read things across the country. And uh, he's very much aware of what's going on. But his involvement with politics right now and support of the Clinton campaign, I believe, leaves him at a position where he's unable to bring these things out for fear of losing his positions. I've even told him so much uh, personally. But uh, this story was recently brought out by him, and Johanna is going to bring it to you. You see there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm on it. I'm on it. Um, as you were saying, this having occurred last year, what what brought this back out was uh, the preliminary report finally came out. As these situations uh, continue to, to occur, usually take about a year for it to get out of the high, out of the uh, headlines, like this story um, having occurred uh, August 19, 2015. It took them a year to come out with their report while people have their minds on other things now, other deaths, other situations, you know, or what have you. So so this is the first step in diminishing the importance of it. See, at this point, this is only really, really, really important to his family, to his children, to his mother, to his, his wife or fiancé or, or ch children's mother or whoever loved him and knew him intimately and personally that's the only people that's left on the planet that really honestly care like enough to do something. Then that's part of the design of this whole system. So from the Daily Cause report, and then we'll get into the, the current the update on the on the uh, the report on what happened to him. It says uh, April 21st, two days after his 24th birthday, J. Michael Mitchell was arrested for stealing less than $5 worth of snacks from a Virginia 7-Eleven store. The snacks included Snickers, a Mountain Dew, and a Zebra Cake, which altogether probably cost more like $3.50. This is a crime, no doubt, but Mitchell, according to court records, had already been diagnosed with severe mental illness and was ruled permanently disabled and unfit for work because of it. This was a lifelong battle for him. So here we, here we go again. This is the way that law enforcement, who's just doing their jobs, reacts to the mentally ill. And, as you saw with the brother that was laying on his back, a mental ill health worker trying to help a mentally ill man. They'll, they'll kill you if you're the, care, the caretaker or try to kill you. Um, at that point, a special designation should have been given to his case and he should have either been taken home and released to his family or immediately taken to a mental health facility, which across the country, there's, uh, what they say, 360,000 mentally ill individuals known locked up in, in prisons and, and jails across the country and just under 36,000 people with mental ill designation in state facilities across the country. So you see what direction the country itself leans 
towards mental mental illness uh, uh, care. Um, so it says the very opposite of this happened, though. Instead of him being taken home, uh, at the time of this arrest, he was six foot three of weight, about 185, was taken to the city jail. For three weeks, he languished there, all for those damn snacks, until he was transferred across town to the regional jail on May 11th. There he languished at great expense to taxpayers for 10 more days until he finally saw a judge. So this said on April 21st is when he took a Snickers, a Mountain Dew, and a zebra cake. And he was in jail until May 11th. Does that seem a little extreme to anybody else? Does that seem like this brother was being set up to be murdered basically from the minute they took him into custody? From April 21st to May 11th, you just in jail over a damn Snickers? Um... Judge Morton Whitlaw ruled Mitchell was not competent to stand trial in order that he be transferred to Eastern State Hospital, a state-run mental health facility in Williamsburg, for treatment. So, again, just to be clear, we're talking about a mentally ill man not being able to stand trial for stealing snacks. Having already spent a month between two jails and declared unfit for trial, we know what should have been should have taken hours, days maybe, first turned into weeks and then into months. For three more months, Mitchell, having already served a month in jail, languished away in another jail. I say languished because something awful happened to him between the time he entered jail and the day his body left there. His family has communicated that he appeared to weigh little more than 100 pounds and was completely unrecognizable and emaciated. Tuskegee, anyone? I think somebody just ran to some kind of a sick Nazi concentration camp and experiment on him. It was nothing. Nobody was there to protect him. He probably starved him to death just to see what would happen. See how long could he hold on? The person I saw deceased was not even the same person. Adams, who was a registered nurse, said Mitchell had practically no muscle mass left by the time of his death. He just, he, they just let him die like a, like, you know, just starved him to death. As you see, we have a huge gap in our history. Mitchell didn't starve to death overnight, but he died slowly, day by day, over a period of months while he was in jail. At any given point, any decision the jail could have made, including taking him to a public hospital or taking him back to his family, would have been exponentially better than what they chose to do by letting him rot to death there. It's hard to believe that not one mental health facility could have accepted him as a patient. At the point in which he had lost 15, 20, or even 40 pounds, it should have been realized that jailers were facing a dire emergency in need of immediate medical attention. But this didn't happen, and we don't need to guess why. J. Michael Mitchell was not treated like someone who truly mattered. So, as we said, this is uh, just over a year later and the Commonwealth attorney received a preliminary report for, from the Virginia State Police about the death of J. Michael Mitchell uh, just this Tuesday, yesterday, August 30th. Mitchell died August 19, 2015. Detectives with the Virginia State Police Chesapeake Field Office opened an inquiry into his death in late May after their family, after his family filed a lawsuit against the jail. As part of the initial inquiry, the state police investigators reviewed existing administrative reviews, including an audit conducted by the Office of State Inspector General. As a result of the reviews, detectives decided to open a formal criminal investigation into the circumstances surrounding his death. Uh, Portsmouth Community, or excuse me, Commonwealth Attorney Stephanie Morales met with state police regarding the preliminary report. She requested more investigative work from the state police. So the investigation's ongoing. Oh, it's a year later. Y'all still care? Well, we'll push it out another couple of years. You'll forget. Once all the foundings are turned over to the Commonwealth's attorney, there will be a review, and then they'll determine what the next step is from there. So, wow. It's very sad. 
Uh, and we're talking about different states now. We talked about Oklahoma, Virginia, mm-hmm. and Maine, and Mississippi. This is something yes. that is a nationwide pro- problem. And these are the direct results of racist policies put into place by blatant racists who are sitting in office. Ferguson is America, people. That's not Ferguson just some tagline. That ain't some ad line. That's that's a real propaganda. That's real. We're telling you the truth. Ferguson is America. Max investigated a series that is one that will go down in history, covering every state alphabetically and showing you week in, week out, all the proof you would ever need to know and understand that Ferguson is America itself. And Indeed, honestly, brother. what happened in Ferguson, whether it was whether it was the people that lived there organically just started an uprising, whether it was people that came from around the country that was pissed off and started an uprising, whether it was the state itself committing some kind of an acts of, of whatever disruption and, and chaos to prove a need to bring in tanks, whatever happened there, it could very easily and probably should happen across the country. Because look what we've seen in the time since then. We've seen more attention to these issues We've seen more light getting shined in the darkness. We've seen people like Darren Rainey died in the state of Florida getting boiled to death sitting in the shower. And then compare that to J. Michael, who in this case was allowed to starve to death. And these things are not going to stop until more cities are disrupted, until more governments are disrupted, until more officials are called out, until more elections are changed, where there's been incumbents that have been in office for 20, 30, 40 years, never even challenged. Until these people are called out and pushed out like, a, what was it, Alvarez in Chicago, Cook County prosecutor, she's gone now. So we need Ferguson-type moments in this country to wake people up, and when they go to the polls, stop voting for these idiots to let this go on. Stop letting these people think it's a free ride. Stop your municipality from generating millions of dollars off the poor, like they do in pretty much every city in the country, Kansas City included. One side of town got casinos and racetracks and shopping centers and generating billions off tax revenue and tourist revenue and everything else. And the other side of the city, well, we're going to get a few million off this same little 10,000 Negroes wringing it out of them like blood out of turnip every single day. Ferguson is America. And, you know, I put all of the, the, the most important information into a very, into one single video, very impactful video called The Incarceration Nation in Black and White. It's mixed with poetry and music because that's just how I do things, uh, to put it with poetry and music. But nonetheless, that information is available on New Abolitionist Radio right there, and it's called The Incarceration Nation in Black and White. You can take a look at our report from Ferguson is America in a 10-minute video right there. And there's more. There is so much more. Every day there's so much more. We can only report on a couple, but we report on just a very small fraction of them. Uh, Another story that came out is out of Oklahoma, and that's where a young brother, and the video is available. I think we should play it. By the way, Scotty, uh, if you can chew it up, and I'll tell people what it's about. It's uh, an 84-year-old woman living at home with her grandson. The grandson is outside. Uh, and, you know, young black males are scared to death of police today. Because if you see a policeman today, the percentage of you dying that day just rose up or just came out of nowhere when it didn't exist just a moment ago. So these police want to stop him, and he uh, takes flight and runs into his grandmother's house. They run in and break down his grandmother's door, 
he stops in the house and then puts his hands up, they tase him anyway. Uh, regardless of whether or not his hands are up, they tase him in this house. This is going on in the house with the 84-year-old woman in it. And when the 84-year-old woman steps up to the police and says, what are you doing in my home and my grandchildren? They basically tell her to shut up or she's going to get maced. And that's exactly what they do to this 84-year-old woman in her home that the police just broke into without a warrant for no reason other than the young man ran into his own house. You can hear the news report uh, on New Abolitionist Radio, and it's only two minutes long, so if we can, we can play it now. Tonight, in a Fox 23 exclusive body cam video of local police pepper spraying an 84-year-old woman. Turn around and face that way now, or I'll spray you. You see it there, you, right there. You may remember we talked with a woman last week. She says Muskogee officers looking for her son wrongfully attacked her. Fox 23's Eddie Randall is live with reaction from the police department and more of that video. Eddie. Shay and Clay, we've stayed in touch with Muskogee police since we first interviewed Geneva Smith last week. And although it took some time, police did release this statement and they also gave us this body camera video. An 84-year-old woman pepper sprayed by a Muskogee police officer is what has many people around town talking. Police say this all started while they searched for the woman's son. Police say he ran a stop sign, then refused to stop, then darted into this home. Police say they asked the man to come out, but he refused, so they went in. You can hear police yell for the man to come towards them before they tase him. Come here. I'm going to tase you. Do it now. Then out comes his 84-year-old mother, Geneva Smith, who police command to turn around. Stay there, ma'am. We counted, and about 40 seconds after the command, they pepper sprayed her, and then she goes down. We talked to her last week, and on Friday, we reviewed the video with the assistant city attorney and sat down with the chief of police, Rex Eskridge, who says the department is working to resolve the situation. This is a very important issue. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of prejudgment going on. There's a lot of concern. For that reason, he tells me they released the video to be transparent by building on the positive relationship he says police have with the community. Do you believe the videos show everything? Videos can't give you the full sense of what happened, but at the same time, they do uh, either validate or uh, expose any warts that you might have. Police say they still have two officers to interview before they can complete that internal investigation. The chief of police will decide what to do from there. Reporting live this evening in Muskogee, covering news that matters, I'm Eddie Randall, Fox 23 News. you got to be kidding me, man. you just got to love it. I mean, when does a, running a stop sign, and I doubt that even happened, because you know they make these things up, but when does... Running a stop sign warrant you breaking into someone's house and nearly killing a woman who did nothing. Well, flame catchers. That's what they did with the sister just a couple of weeks ago and killed her in front of her child and shot the child. Yes, they said that was over traffic warrants. So I mean, but yeah, I'm just listening to his to the to the media. Uh, liaison to his commentary. I mean, I I had to laugh at just the way he was so casual about saying don't 
we put out the video so we could be transparent, but don't believe what you see in the video. What the right. hell? How many ways do you have to twist the truth for it to be to be true? You put out the video so you could be transparent, but you realize that what people see in the video before their eyes is not able to really truly communicate what was going on. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, Straight make, up make you think. Fast, yeah, man. make you think like, well, just ten minutes prior to that, what you didn't see is that the eighty-six-year-old woman had a gun and a knife while a blunt was hanging from. Her. <laughs> <laughs> That's a damn shame, man. That's a damn shame. We we're upset that the video didn't convince you of what we want you to believe about this situation. So. Uh, and then to say that we built a a, a good uh, relationship with the community, really, you got a good good situation in the community, then you wouldn't be chasing somebody down for not stopping at a stop sign and kicking in their door and macing their mama. If you had a good situation with the community, right? I got a good situation with my community. I got a good situation with the people that live in the house with me. If somebody stole something from me, I'm not gonna go in and start stomping them out. I'm gonna ask, where's my stuff? Because we got a good situation, right? We got a good relationship. If somebody steps and does something against me that I don't care for, I'm going to talk about it with them like a civil person because we got a good relationship. When you got a good relationship with the community, you don't go kick in people's doors over a damn stop sign violation that you declared that's what they did. Just lies. Yeah, it's just lies. I mean, like you said, sitting there listening to him try to, you know, explain this away and tell them how they're going to fix the problem. You can't fix something you already did. You can't unmurder people. You can't untaze them. You can't unbrutalize them. How do you fix that? This is a, a symptom state after state, city after city where these things are going on to the point where a young brother, like the story that just came out about uh, out in California where the cops were hiding behind a car and there's a suicidal man with a knife and there's about a dozen cops that's watch the video with my own eyes there's no rhetoric that you can hear in it you've got to see it for yourself go to new abolitionist radio and check it out it's only a minute long a minute is so long these cops are hiding behind a car and man's there with a knife every one of them's armed some of them with high power rifles and then the man turns to run away from the cops who said that they that he charged them. They lied and said he charged them because they didn't know this video was out. And he ran away from the cops, and then they started firing. And there's about a dozen cops, and each one of them fired at least two to three times. How many bullets does it take to stop one man with a knife who's running away from you? I wonder. Because they shot him at least 20-some-odd times and murdered this man in cold blood as a gang. It wasn't one cop. It was all of them, black white, Hispanic, all together under the color of blue, murdering a man in broad daylight on the streets of California who was suicidal. Now, we've seen you deal with your white uh, uh, arrestees and, you know, talk them through it for hours and uh, assure them they're not going to get hurt and treat them with utmost dignity and respect their rights. But young black and Hispanic men, they just get shot on sight. They get tased in their mother's home. They get brutalized in broad daylight. You need to take a look at this video. And uh, the story is also available as well from the Free Thought Project. 
both of them which are available on New Abolitionist Radio. It's just a terrible state that we're living in right now where crimes against humanity are justified as some kind of justice and law when they are not justice and law. It is simply a genocide against a people that you deem in Inferior, and you think are unwanted people in this country who need to go back to wherever they came from. R.I.P. to Jamie Powell. R.I.P. Jamie Powell. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. When we come back, we're going to do maybe one or two more stories, and then we're going to get into our abolitionist profile and our rider of the 21st century Underground Railroad. We'll be right back after these messages. Black Talk Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. I just make, like to make the final comment regarding these last couple of stories. We shouldn't be holding any one individual responsible for this, although they should be held responsible to a very large degree. But you have to remember who pays them, who signs their paychecks, where they're being trained, who is excusing their actions. As a whole, our police forces across America are responsible, responsible for these, and, and indirectly, you, the taxpayer are responsible as well because you're paying people to kill your children and you're giving them your money to do these things. I'm just very upset about what I'm seeing. You know, it's the three of us right here to go through this every week and to see these stories that very few see, but to see them in such overwhelming numbers that we don't do changes a person. It affects you permanently. You know, and, and it's just a terrible thing to have to deal with. So we need all the support and help that we could possibly get to make this easier for us, uh, as, as you know, just as human beings with our own feelings and problems that are going on. You know, two days ago, my daughter just had two blood transfusions. She is facing the most terrible conditions with bone cancers. And here I am two days later telling you about somebody else's children being killed while mine is facing her own doom right now. It's just not easy. So we need help. We need you to help us get these stories out. We need you to help us with donations. We just need help. Well, I guess that's all I got to say about that. Anything to close this part up, fellas? Well, before we went to the break, I was saying R.I.P. to Jamie Powell because, I mean, this is the same type of story where he said with the brother tried to run away, cops come out with their story saying he charged at him, and we saw the same thing happen in St. Louis right during the Ferguson uprising. We get this news report in the middle of the day saying a young black man came charging at the police with a gun, made an overhand motion, blah, 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 blah. Police had to shoot him 27 times and kill him dead. And then the video came out and showed he walked into the store, didn't say a word to the clerk. He had made a decision to martyr himself to show the world what was going to happen, what was going on. 
grabbed a couple of energy drinks out the cooler, walked out the front door, never said a word to the clerk, set them down on the curb, stood there at the curb with his hands in his pockets and waited on the police to show up, which they did in just a couple of seconds, rolled up on him, guns drawn, lit him up, told us that he tried to charge him. This is not anything new, man. This is not anything new, sadly. And this story about how these people are so criminal and how what they're doing is, is so bad and it's just so illegal and they just so they need to be brought to heel, as Hillary Clinton says, is as old as the dealings that Europeans basically have had with Africans since they discovered them in a time where they had somewhat superior technology in terms of weaponry and ability to kill mass numbers of Africans and other indigenous people and bring them into slavery as uh, the late Dr. Amos Wilson once said very correctly black criminality is the currency of white supremacy so you're talking about currency whether you're talking about the, the energy like electrical current the energy that keeps it going or if you're talking about the currency in terms of the, the money money generated off of black criminality currency as in the current state of affairs black criminality remains ever since 1550 and John Locke going and getting a couple of Africans and teaching them English and teaching them English customs and then taking them back in fine suits of clothes and telling them how to tell other Africans hey come with us and take this boat ride and threw them into slavery and it never stopped the current situation is black criminality continues to support white supremacy and all of these laws that we talk about all of these consequences of breaking the law that we talk about, all of this legislation is written, all of these representatives that are elected, all of these revenues that are generated, all of these lives that are supported, all of this everything that we're talking about supports one person being above another person yeah it's by class to some degree but, but by the utmost it's by race I would just like to um, say these comments before we move into our last few segments. Um, um, Max, you just detailed why I while you one of my best friends, man. I don't know if I ever told you that, but I do consider you a friend. Uh, have met you and your wife personally. I've been working with you all these years. Now, I was earlier today listening to a very confused. Um, African-American man and talk about, you know, Colin Kaepernick's uh, protest and saying that he's not oppressed. He making a hundred million dollars or how many ever, how you make that kind of money and not oppressed. And then, you know, just regardless of his ignorance and not even uh, looking up the transcripts to hear what Colin Kaepernick said, I mean, read for himself what he said or, or here he talked about you know, well, this man ain't oppressed. When Colin Kaepernick said it ain't about me, it's about the bodies in the street. It's about the people that don't have a voice. It's not about anything I'm suffering personally, okay? And and so, but just just how it lets you know where a person's mind is at or their heart is at, whichever one you want to use, their heart or, or mind, um, it just lets you know when they look at things as, you know, it's all about me. It's all about how much I'm making. 
and it's all about whether or not I'm being oppressed. So Kaepernick's not being oppressed, so he can't say anything about oppression or the oppression of other people. That's a very sick mentality and one that is prevalent, you know, in this country. I mean, I'm not in prison, never been to prison, came close to going, you know, like everybody else, you know, uh, um, that has been targeted. But because there is a very low likelihood for me to go to prison right now, it's not about me. It's about the potential of other people who are in situations where the percentages rise by area code, if you know what I'm saying. You know, the Ferguson's of uh, uh, our America zip codes out there. I'm not in one of those zip codes, but this ain't about me. This is about the people living those zip codes. So, Max, you just demonstrated who you are and where your mind is at that you could just be focusing on. You could have said, Scotty, look, man, my daughter it, it has bone cancer. She just, you know, is having a very tough time physically, emotionally, mentally with this, and I need to take some time off. But you still took time out to put together a program and then come on the airways for two hours and talk about Stuff that's an impact. And, and yes, you do have children that are enslaved right now. So, I, I mean, again, though, you still set all of that aside. And you don't come on here regularly and talk about your son's case. You don't come on here regularly talking about your personal problems. You know, you come on talking about everybody else's problems. And and that that is where we are today. You know, they, you, you, and I'm just glad to, you know, be in this struggle with people like you. Well, Scott, you're one of those people, you and your honey, who I would say that I trust with my life. And there's not a lot of those in this world. <laughs> not a lot of them. I would trust you with my life. And I think I even told somebody that recently publicly when they asked about Black Talk Radio's new community you know, and having to pay to be a part of it. And I was like, you know, Scotty's one of those people I trust with my life. And if he says that he's going to do the right thing and he's trying to make it, you know, put us in a position where we are empowered because of it, you can trust that's what he's going to do. There's no alternative, you know, alternate uh, ideas or things that he's trying to achieve. He's trying to do something for us. So, yeah, thank you, brother. I, I am proud to stand side by side with both of you, brothers, indeed. And uh, you're right, I, I don't talk about my personal issues, and then Lord knows I have. But uh, we're here for another reason. We're here because by solving these problems, I solve my own. I help to solve my own problems because these problems we share. We share these problems. At any minute, I could be in prison just for giving my daughter a joint to smoke in order for her to alleviate some of the suffering she's going through. I could go to prison for that. And nobody should have to deal with something that ridiculous. But we have several stories more that we want to get on to, but we're not going to be able to tonight. We want you to go to New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook. Make sure you like the page and check out the stories that explain several things. One is how prison labor is the new American slavery, and most of us unknowingly support it, with a list of different companies, major international companies using prison slave labor. The story is slave trade routes of U.S. private prisons. The connections are made, and all you have to do is look and see them. And the other one is the reason America adopted race-based slavery, because it always wasn't about race. Race came into the uh, equation after slavery was existed in order to put it on black people in particular. So you make sure you check those out because those of us who do not 
study history doing the reporting. Well, we're coming up to our final two segments. Uh, Our first one will be our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. I'm pulling that up right now. We like to uh, recognize the fact that there are people escaping these cages. Quick question. Quick question, Max. Um, You didn't choose an abolitionist, did you? Could you say that again? Did you choose an abolitionist? No, sir, I didn't. Okay, I got one. Okay, okay, I'm ready. All right, well, the first one will be the rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, and then we'll go to our abolitionist in profile. A rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad this week is Keir Stewart. Keir Stewart eagerly descended the courthouse steps into the arms of his waiting family and friends on Monday, April 13, 2015, just a year ago. In taking those strides, he also stepped back into the free world. Keir was exonerated through a unique joint effort between IPNO and the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office. The newly launched Conviction Integrity and Accuracy Project. The conclusion of Kia's case and the end of his wrongful incarceration marked the project's first success. Kia was mistakenly identified as the man who shot Brian B.J. Craig on a public street in broad daylight on July 31, 2005, just a month after Hurricane Katrina would devastate New Orleans. Within hours of the shooting, police developed Kia as a suspect in the case based on a factually inaccurate anonymous tip. By the end of the day, without canvassing the scene for witnesses or doing anything else to develop leads, police included Kia's photograph in an array of, for BJ's distraught friend to identify. This single eyewitness identification was the only evidence against Kia. At the time of his arrest, Kia was just 17 years old. He was forced to suffer Paris. He was forced to suffer through the hells of Hurricane Katrina and after its aftermath from the Orleans Parish Prison where he believed he would be left to drown in a cell. Even after being belatedly evacuated, he waited for months without an attorney and with no way to contact his family. Months. In 2016, in 2006, the Tulane University Law Clinic accepted an appointment to represent Kia on his second degree murder charge. Through the clinic, students and attorneys were dedicated to Kia's case. They were unable to locate witnesses in post-Katrina New Orleans. Four years after his arrest, Kia was wrongfully convicted after a short trial in which the state presented one eyewitness. Shortly after his conviction, the clinic began to uncover some of the many witnesses who would eventually prove his innocence. Unfortunately, despite the clinic filing several motions for new trial based on his evidence, Kia's conviction became final, and he was sent to the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola where he was sent to work in the fields. IPNO began work on Kia's case in 2013. In total, through vigorous investigation, we discovered at least 18 witnesses who saw the crime and saw that Kia was not the shooter, heard the true perpetrator, confessed to the crime, or who proved Kia's alibi. After bringing the case to the district attorney's office and doing a joint review of the evidence, IPNO, Orleans Parish District's attorney's entered into a series of joint stipulations concerning the breadth of this new evidence. On April 13, 2015, Judge Darrell Durbinji reviewed those stipulations and ordered that Kia's conviction be vacated and that he be immediately released from custody. The district attorney's office immediately to dismiss all charges against Kia's crime. Kia left the courthouse surrounded by members of his loyal and loving family and friends, as well as IPNO staff. 
he has celebrated his exoneration with chicken salad per his request. Since his release, Kia has been getting in touch with old friends and spending time with his family, especially his little nieces and nephews. He is so glad he gets to be Uncle Kia now. Kia has also had the opportunity to travel to Washington, D.C. and speak with a variety of groups concerning his case. He is working hard to make up the spending the first 10 years of his adult life in prison for a crime he did not commit. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you. Welcome to Freedom, brother. Salute. Well, week after week, after week after week after week, case after case, we know that there are many more yet to come. And we pray that their exonerations come much swifter than they have been coming now. Our next segment, and our last, before our final comments, we do have Abolitionist Profile, which is provided for you today by Scotty Reed. All right. Um, this information comes to you, our Abolitionist in Profile, who is Leonard Grimes, uh, born in 1815, died in 1873. He was born in Virginia. And this comes to you from the zenprojects.org. Again, that is the zenproject.org under the materials for black abolitionists. So let me go ahead and, and uh, cue up my music. Leonard Grimes, Leonard Grimes, 1815 to 1873, born in Virginia, was an abolitionist and pastor who played an active role on the Underground Railroad. After witnessing the horrors of slavery as a young man, Grimes determined to do all he could to help people escape. He got a job as a hackman, horse and carriages for hire to provide cover for his work on the Underground Railroad. In 1839, he was arrested in Washington, D.C., Yes, the nation's capital, for transporting a family to freedom and sent to Virginia, where he was sentenced to two years of hard labor in the Richmond Penitentiary. After his release, he and his family moved to Boston, where he became the first pastor of 12th Baptist Church, known as the Fugitives Church. There, he continued his abolitionist work and opened defiance of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. He was credited with helping hundreds of freedom seekers make their way to Canada. We highly recommend a short essay about his life, which was written by Deborah A. Lee. Leonard Grimes, born 1815, died in 1873 in New Abolitionist Radio. Salutes you, sir. Salute. Salute, I think about these these segments, y'all. The modern-day Underground Railroad folks that, you know, get exonerated through the efforts of uh, abolitionists and folks that are are out here to help get them free. I think about the past. Uh, those that did it, you know, when when it was when it was in a different form, but going on day in day out, millions affected. And I think about right now. I don't I don't know people other than y'all I talk to or some that we meet in the struggle. I don't know if people would do anything back in those days. Like people say that they would just, oh, I would have helped. I would have been on Underground Railroad. I would have ran away. I would have. I don't think you would. 
I don't think I don't think people I don't think you would. <clears throat> you can see that. I mean, that was, say they would have been yeah, like Solomon, right? Solomon Northrop. Yeah. <laughs> and enjoying the butter biscuit, the butter biscuit banquet until he finds out that he's the main course being served up in the slavery. Then, yeah, it affects me. Now I care about it. Again, you know, not right. trying to belittle Solomon Northrop and his contribution to abolitionists, but it took it happening to him personally before he got involved. Right. Don't be that guy. Wow. And it would be the same as today if a person was willing to walk up to a prison or dig a tunnel. I mean, they got El Chapo out, didn't they? Those were abolitionists for his cause, dug a tunnel and got him out, right? That would be the equivalent in today's Underground Railroad. If you dig a tunnel and, and start getting folks out, and they look up and cells are empty. If you created some kind of a network where you could help people uh, go on work release programs that, that just don't ever come back to their cell, you help develop an Underground Railroad program that, that co-opted the the work release or co-opted the the going out in the in the whatever they do to get out of the sales some kind of way you just got a, a connection and you work it that's what people were doing they was they they would have to choose to go to a plantation and go help people get out they would have to choose to set up businesses along the underground railroad and if the, if the slaves was used to go get supplies help supply them with with armor with armaments and with supplies and things that they could stash along the way so they could take off running. I mean, people were actually engaging the prison system. Plantations were the first prisons in America, in the colonies, plantations. You you stole and kidnapped people and put them in a place where they could not leave and they had to do free labor. You got to do whatever you wanted to do to them. To get those people out of there would be the same as going today to prisons and jails and doing whatever you could by any means necessary to get some of them people out. I don't think people realize that, and I don't think people would do it. I see that they won't do it. You have an opportunity to today to be a hero, to be heroic, to do what you said you would do. If I was back in the day during slavery, I would have such and such. Well, you are, and it is, so do it. Use what talents you have to make a difference in your world, in your community, and around you. Well, we're coming up on our closing statements and I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm going to start it out and uh, I'll just finish with my normal comment when you guys are done. But I want to start out because I just want to point out a couple of events that are coming up that are very important. First of all, September 9th, the prison work strike, which is happening across the country. If you're aware of this program and of the prison work strike that is going on, please make sure you tell someone on the inside so that they know when they can contribute. If you want to know what to tell them, uh, because some of them, many of them, depend on these scraps that they get in order to get the necessities that they have to have to survive, whether it be socks or toothpaste or even just Vermont Raymond noodles, which is currency in prisons right now. We want them to stop working, period. Don't do anything. Don't make beds. Don't shoot floors. Don't do call centers. Don't work in factories. Don't process hamburger. Don't work in the fields in Angola. Don't do anything. It's a prison work strike across the entire country, and you need to be telling people that it's going down. September 9th, on the anniversary of the Attica uh, prison slavery revolt of that date in 1971. 
Also, I'll be the keynote speaker at Missouri Cures 13th Annual Statewide Conference, Saturday, September 24, 2016. It'll be after all that occurs, so I'm looking forward to speaking of this event in the post sense. That goes down 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Southeast Community Center, 63rd in Jackson, Kansas City, Missouri. The event's free but they'd like you to RSVP. Contact them at MissouriPure.org. And also, I'll be the featured speaker at Chronic 2016, which is Carolina's Human Rights Organizing Conference, October 21st through October 23rd in Nashville, North Carolina, at the Lutheran Camp and Conference Center. You can contact them to find out uh, times of the events at Chronic at Chronic SC. NC.org or call them at 864-735-5520. And finally, tomorrow, uh, my wife and I, Tribal Rain, will be visiting the session live. And, uh, you know, we were, I was the host of the session live for many years. And today, uh, nowadays, it's hosted by Spirit the Tattoo Poet and DJ Bless, two uh, wonderful friends of mine. And uh, Spirit is like a son to me. And they're featuring Way the Theta as their featured artist tomorrow in Columbia, South Carolina at 110 Columbia Northeast Drive, Columbia, South Carolina. So check them out 9 p.m. tomorrow at Session Live at Sensations Restaurant. That's all I had to say. All right. Well, I will go um, now. And I just want to say that I'm in a pretty good mood today, especially after I got that news in the email about the turmoil, which I had been monitoring very closely. Well, of course, obviously, um, through my abolitionism, I've been paying attention to this for years now, uh, especially since we launched New Abolitionist Radio on, on this platform. But today, I would have to say I was more excited than prior days because I know I, I just know how serious a uh, serious damage that has been done to the private prison industry, even if we're only talking about this one company. Now, I do need to find out what's going on with the CCA stock, what's going on with the MTC stock. But, I mean, even if we could take down completely just the second largest private prison slaver company in the world, if we could take them down, Man, that would be such a victory. That would be such a victory in this war. In this, it'd be a, a battle victory, not the end of the war. But man, I'm just so excited. I'm encouraged. Now I know everything that we have, all the work we have put into, all the time we have invested in analyzing all of this information, presenting it to our listeners, getting it out there to the people through social media. That it. Hey, it has not been in vain. It has not been in vain. And again, this is just the beginning of the end, I feel. So I just feel great. Um, and I just want to thank each and every abolitionist out there. I don't care if you just share the podcast, share some information. I don't if you just went to your pastor and say, hey, I think you need to divest from private prisons. If you just told somebody about the 13th Amendment, never abolishing slavery. I mean, now we're seeing the ripple effects of that with on October the 7th, the 13th, the documentary coming out. So, hey, it's a great it's a great time to be alive and to be an abolitionist. Thanks. Word. Johannes? Indeed. 
the uh, Scotty, the Corrections Corporation of America stock is trading at close today, uh, August thirty first, twenty sixteen, at fifteen dollars and ninety three cents. Oh sale. my goodness! Wow. Yeah. That's uh, that's down that's down from a fifty two week high of thirty five dollars and five cents per share. Um, Geo Group stock is trading uh, closed today, August sixteen or August thirty first, uh, twenty sixteen, at twenty dollars and four cents per share, down from a fifty two week high of thirty five dollars and fourteen cents. They reached a low of sixteen dollars though. When it, when it all bottomed out a couple days ago. Yeah, so, so yesterday just, it was below twenty, and it just went up uh, about a dollar and some change. So, so what? They still are yeah. under. They're still under assault, and they know it, especially with those three lawsuits you reported on earlier. Right, right. So it's it's going down, folks. We took these people from thirty five dollars a share to a low of about thirteen dollars a share, and uh, that's why their investors are suing them in a cl- in separate class action suits. And uh, the DHS is investigating them, and they will find problems. As anybody that investigates them will find problems. We should know we've been investigating them for several years, and all we ever found was problems. So, peace to the abolitionists and death to the oppressors. Amen to that. You know, taking down the Geo Group or CCA is the equivalent of taking down the British East India Company. This should be celebrated, and we are going to get it done. And we remember something in particular, that abolition is the reason for revolution. So we can finally know some peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your eyes rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord. 